as we transition again, I'm going to invite Renee to come up to do our scripture reading. And if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12, we'll do the scripture reading. Thanks, Renee. Good morning. This is the word of God from John 12, 31 through 36. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Amen. Thanks, Renee. Good morning, church family. How are we? You guys good? Uh, My name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, welcome. Glad to have you. Uh, As Chris said a moment ago, we just love the opportunity to connect with you, just to find out why you'd be here on a Sunday morning. A lot of reasons why people go to church. Sometimes you go out of obligation because somebody made you come. Sometimes you go because... There's guilt that's weighing on you. Sometimes you're going because you're just genuinely curious. Sometimes you're going because you're looking for a friend. I don't know why you're here. Uh, But I believe deep down in my bones that God has each and every single one of us here for a specific reason today. And we're in the Gospel of John. And this is our 40th sermon from the Gospel of John. And we're going to finish up the month of November in the Gospel of John. December is Advent. We're going to talk more about it later, but excited to do a sermon series called Witnesses of the Advent, where we look at the prophets and the shepherds and the angels and the magi who come to visit. These are all witnesses to Christ's coming. And then we'll be back in John after the holidays and all of that. And so today we come across a passage that has some challenging words for us. And I... Ask for this often, but I would really appreciate your prayers today. As I pray for our time, I want to be able to speak the truth in love today. And even when there are hard and challenging words, see, that's one of the reasons why we like going through books of the Bible, because otherwise you might get Aaron's favorite top 10 topics all the time. And when we go through books of the Bible, line by line, verse by verse, it forces us to look at some things that God has put in his word. And the scripture makes a claim that not only is all the scriptures breathed out by God, but all of it, every word of it, is valuable for us. We believe that. So we're going to dive in, and uh, I would appreciate your prayers, and I'm going to pray for us. Will you join me? God, thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to gather like this. And God, I pray today that your word, which is living and powerful, would be brought to bear upon our hearts and our minds. Would you send your spirit right now, God, to, to do a work within us? If you don't send your spirit, if you don't do the work, uh, God, where, wherever our hearts are hard or our, our ears are dull, uh, God, we're hopeless. We need you. We need your grace. We need your love. We need your spirit. We need to be empowered by you to understand. And not only to understand in an intellectual sense, but to really receive what it is you have for us. So Jesus, help me to be truthful in all that I say. Help all of us to have soft and receptive hearts to your word. And may Jesus get the glory of our time together. It's in his name we pray. Everyone said, amen. The last few weeks, if you've been with us, you've noticed that it's almost like it's been building to a crescendo. 
It all really started back in, in John chapter 12 or 11 at the beginning of the chapter when Jesus raises from the dead a man named Lazarus. And this sets into effect a chain reaction of events where people are coming out of the woodwork and they're praising Jesus. And there's, there's all sorts of fascination about him. And, and Mary is getting down on the ground and, and worshiping Jesus and wiping his feet with her hair. And they go to Jerusalem and people come out of the city and they're waving palm branches. And the religious leaders who are, are jealous are saying, ah, oh, we've done a terrible job of stopping Jesus. Look, the, the whole world is chasing after him. And then all of a sudden, these non-Jewish people, these, these Greek show up and say, we want to meet with Jesus too. And Jesus says, you got you to pour your life out. You got to spend your life. You got to give it away in order to receive it. And it just seems like there's all this momentum for team Jesus, right? We're excited. It's rah, rah. It's, it's go get them. It's let's see people saved. Let's see people meet Jesus. Let's see lives transformed by the message of hope that Jesus brings. And then we hit this section today. And it's, it's a sad section because it focuses on the unbelief of the people. And in fact, verse 39 is going to go so far as to say, they could not believe. And there's some challenging things in here, but really what we're trying to do today is we're trying to answer a question. One question. Why is it that some people don't believe in Jesus? I'm going to assume, which is always dangerous, but the majority of you here in this room are here because you do believe in Jesus and you find Jesus compelling. You, you would like to think that if you were there during Jesus' earthly ministry, you would be there waving the palm branches and cheering him on. And, and when the crucifixion came, you would stay faithful and you wouldn't run off. I think we'd like to think that about ourselves, but we're still left with this question. I have friends, I have family. There are people who just don't get it. They don't believe. Anybody like that here today? Why don't they believe? Why don't they get it? Why don't they understand? Why don't they love Jesus the way that I do? That's what we're going to try to answer today. And the big idea of where we're going to go is just simply this. When it comes to sharing the gospel and seeing people get saved, our job is faithfulness. God's job is results. Our job is faithfulness. God's job is results. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you. We're going to pick up actually in verse, uh, in verse uh, 20. I'm in the wrong chapter. We're going to pick up in, yes, verse 27 in the correct chapter, which is 12. We're going to read a longer section of scripture than what we just had in the scripture reading here this morning. And so we're going to tackle a few additional thoughts throughout. Now you'll remember last week, Jesus was talking about a grain of wheat has to go into the ground. It's going to die and if that grain of wheat dies, it's going to spring up and bring life everlasting. Jesus was talking about his own death on the cross and his own resurrection. And in verse 27, he says, Now is my soul troubled. Jesus' soul is troubled because he knows he's going to the cross. He knows that he's going to suffer a criminal's death. And it's not just the physical pain it's not just the shame of being lifted up in front of people, but actually the spiritual pain of having the Father turn away from him. My soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? What should I say? God, get me out of this? No, this is the whole purpose that I have come to this hour. It is for this purpose that I'm here. 
I am not going to ask my father to deliver me from this. This was agreed upon before the foundations of the earth that I would give my life to bring my people back to the father. And then he prays, Father, would you glorify your name? This is a whole additional sermon, but the name of God is a huge term, but I'll just summarize it to say it has to do with God's character. It has to do with God's reputation. Maybe we could paraphrase this, this prayer as Jesus saying, Father, would you let people know who you really are? Would you show yourself in a really big and powerful way? Then a voice came from heaven. Well, this just keeps happening to Jesus, doesn't it? You guys remember one time, at least specifically, where a voice boomed from heaven before during Jesus' life and ministry? His baptism. A voice thundered from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. That just, wouldn't you love to be there for that? My voice, no one has ever described my voice as booming. Uh... But just that idea of like a thunderous voice just showing. I've been described as loud, uh, grating, yes, but never booming. Voice thundered from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Okay, I want to pause for just a brief moment here. Wouldn't you like to be there? Wouldn't you like to hear that voice? And wouldn't you think that if you were one of those who believed in Jesus and you were there with a family member or a friend who does not believe in Jesus, you would like elbow them in the ribs and be like, did you hear that? You should probably believe in Jesus. You should probably take seriously what he's saying. But the problem is, as we're going to see again, they didn't believe even though he'd done these signs, even though he'd done these miracles, you can look down ahead to a little bit later in verse 37. Jesus has done these signs, Jesus has done these miracles, and the point is the people still don't believe. I know Christians, people who really genuinely love Jesus, people who genuinely love the scriptures, and they really are keen on the idea of God doing miracles. And I wish that we were the kind of church that had a little bit more faith that we serve a miracle working God. I just, I'll just say that. I love Sound City Bible Church. I love each of you. I love our leadership team. I just wish sometimes maybe we weren't quite so practical. <laughs> and we just had a little bit more faith. That, man, God, what if God just showed up and blew all of our minds? There's even a verse in, in Matthew 13, where it says Jesus couldn't do many miracles in that town because the people just had no faith. Lord, that we would be the kind of church that has a lot of faith, that you can heal people. You could change lives dramatically. But listen to me on this. Some of these Christians, people who I know and people who I love, sometimes they say, well, if we just experienced more miracles, then everyone would get saved. What people are missing in our Western, you know, naturalistic American culture is they just need more encounters with the divine. If God would just show up in miraculous, wonder-working power, all doubts would cease and faith would increase and everyone would give their lives to Jesus. The problem is, is that's not what we see, even in the scriptures. 
As I said again in, in verse 37, I mean, we'll get there eventually, but verse 37, even though he'd done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. There's a great Puritan preacher from, from the, the, the 18th century, J.C. Ryle, he says this, he says, we err greatly if we suppose that seeing wonderful, miraculous things will ever convert souls. Thousands live and die in this delusion. They fancy if they saw some miraculous sight or witnessed some supernatural exercise of divine grace, they would lay aside their doubts and at once become decided Christians. It is a total mistake. Listen, here's the key. Nothing short of a new heart and a new nature implanted in us by the Holy Spirit will ever make us real disciples of Christ. Without this, a miracle might raise within us a little temporary excitement. But once the novelty is gone, we would find ourselves just as cold and unbelieving as these Jews. A miracle's great. And God does miracles. Amen? And God does use miracles to convert people. Amen? But it's not the miracle that causes the conversion. It's the work of the Holy Spirit upon the hearts and the minds of those who previously did not believe. Without that, a miracle just gets you excited. You might as well go to Vegas and see Chris Angel if he's still performing. I don't know. Do people not believe because they need to see a miracle? Nope, that's not the answer. Let's keep going. Verse 30. Jesus answered them, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. He's like, thank you, Father, for speaking loudly. This is for them. This isn't for me. I hear him speaking like this all the time. (laughs) Then Jesus says this, now is the judgment of the world. I'm not going to unpack that word judgment today because I'm going to spend the entire sermon next week unpacking the word judgment. So if you really are looking forward to a rip, snort, and good time next Sunday morning and you want to hear the, you know, as we call it, the M&M sermon, only God can judge me, right? You make sure you uh, set your alarms for next Sunday. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. By the way, when I'm going to draw all people, remember how this whole conversation started. These Greek people wanted to come talk to Jesus. Jew and Gentile alike, one family brought into the family of Abraham, branches grafted into the tree. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the cross. I'm going to bring all the nations of the world to myself. It's through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he even says this. He's saying it. When I am lifted up, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Here's the, here's the thing. Sometimes we think of judgment day, you know, as happening in the future. And that is true. There is a day The Bible says repeatedly that there is a time coming when Christ will return and he will judge the nations, he will judge the living, and he will judge the dead. All those who have ever lived and those who sleep in the dust of the earth will rise and we will all stand before Christ the righteous judge. For those of you who are Christians, we have nothing to fear. Our judgment already took place on Jesus at the cross. So that's why he says, now is the time of judgment because judgment day, yes, while it happens in the future, it started at the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you have placed your faith in Jesus, his death and resurrection, you have literally nothing to fear on the day of Christ's return. You have only reward to receive and to hear from our master, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your reward. How good is that? How good is that? But I want to focus on this line where he says, 
the ruler of the world will be cast out. So, so who, who is Jesus referring to here when he says the ruler of the world? Mm-hmm. Satan, right? The enemy. So let's talk about the enemy for a minute. The enemy. Because maybe one of the reasons that people don't believe is the enemy has got him. So the enemy is known by many names. He is known by Satan. By the way, Satan is not a name. It's Hashatan. It means the adversary or the accuser. It literally is the terminology for a prosecuting attorney. Someone who stands before God and accuses and says, they did this wrong. They did that wrong. They did this wrong. They ought to face punishment. In the New Testament, we get the word diabolos, which is where we get devil. You see serpent. You see dragon. You see prince of the power of the air. You get uh, one of my personal favorites, Lord of the Flies, or translated as Beelzebub, uh, right? That great theologian Freddie Mercury mentioned him in Bohemian Rhapsody. You get morning star, which is where we get the word Lucifer. Sometimes people mistakenly think that Lucifer is the proper name for Satan. It's not. It's a Latinization of the word morning star, uh, which comes from the Hebrew. Many names. Here he's called the ruler of this world. And you might be as a good Bible-believing Christian, thought, wait a minute, I thought that God was the ruler of this world. And you're right. Satan is an illegitimate ruler. The enemy is an illegitimate ruler who has set up a rival competing throne, a rival competing rulership, and he says, I'm in charge of the world. We all know the truth. God's really in charge. Satan wants to have his field day, but he is an illegitimate ruler. And what we see happening in this passage is at the cross, there is a great exchange. And I'm not just talking about the great exchange of our sin going to Jesus and his righteousness coming to us. No, there's a great exchange where Jesus is now enthroned and Satan is dethroned. That's what you're seeing at the cross. That's what you're seeing happen at the cross. And it's amazing that in this moment, I I love this idea. Jesus saying, yeah, when I'm enthroned, when I'm lifted up, I mean, yeah, I, have you ever been to like a ceremony where someone was like put in place, uh, like something prestigious, something, you know, maybe, maybe you've not been to an inauguration or you've been to a, you know, a new king or a queen, but maybe you got to go into a, a ceremony, somebody was being sworn in, a, a new president of a college or something like that, right? It's, it's prestigious. We're all focused on this person. They're stepping into this new role of leadership. Jesus says, when I'm hanging like meat on a criminal's tree, that's my enthronement ceremony. Oh, and by the way, Satan's kicked out. This is so amazing to see the cross as where Jesus is drawing all men to himself. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers of all time, uh, 19th century English guy, he said this, for a man's work to prosper, it is not desirable that he should die. <laughs> like, hey, if you really want to like, prosper, it's, it's not usually a good thing that you die. Is it not strange that what is so often fatal to the influence of other men is a gain to our Lord Jesus Christ? For it is by his death that he possesses his most powerful influence over the sons of men. Because Jesus died, he is this day the mightiest ruler of human minds, the great center to which all hearts are being drawn. Is that good news to you today? Because of Jesus' death, It's not just because of his miracles. It's not just because of his teaching. All of those things are good and right and important. But Jesus said, nope, it's my death on the cross. It's going to draw all people to myself. Yeah, I know that's a bit of a buzzkill for other leaders, but watch, it's going to work for me. Which leads us to kind of the final conclusion here about what Jesus is saying about Satan, which is this, that Satan is dangerous 
yet he is defeated. Because Jesus has been enthroned, Satan has been dethroned, he is now in this position of knowing that his time is short. In the book of Colossians, the apostle Paul's reflecting on this truth and he talks about the cross of Jesus. He says, at the cross, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly, triumphing over them in Jesus. So Satan is publicly humiliated. His little illegitimate uh, insurrection that he tried to uh, pull off over God, he's now been defeated in Christ Jesus. Now, is, is Satan still active on the earth today? I believe so, yeah. Do, do, do the various New Testament writers encourage us, hey, watch out, be on your guard. Peter tells us he's like a roaring lion. I like to think of him as a toothless lion, but those are still big cats nonetheless. Peter, or Paul tells us, you know, you need to put on your, your guard because he's going to shoot these, these fiery arrows at you but you've got all the armor you need. Don't worry too much. Sometimes we can give too much power to the devil. Oh, people don't believe because the devil's got them. No, actually, as we're going to see in a minute, they've kind of got themselves. Yes, the enemy likes to deceive people, but he is a defeated and a bound and a disgraced enemy. Amen? So let's not give him too much credit. Be on your guard, be watchful. But at the end of the day, the reason why people don't believe is not ultimately because of the devil. Picking up in verse 34. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law, the Torah, the the first five books of the Bible, that the Christ or the Messiah remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? The son of man, uh, Jesus hasn't mentioned it explicitly here in this passage, but it was well known that this is the favorite way that Jesus referred to himself. It's an, it comes from an Old Testament book called the book of Daniel. This figure like a son of man who is elevated to the highest possible place and is now ruling over the heavens. And so they're asking this question about the Messiah and the son of man, and he's going to remain forever. How can he be lifted up? How can he be dying? if he's supposed to remain forever. They want to get theological. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for just a little while hunger. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. They want to talk theology. They want to get into the weeds of theology. Let's talk about this son of man character. Let's talk about the Messiah. How does this work together? How does this verse work with that verse? And Jesus says two things. He says, number one, you're missing the point of your theology. You're missing the point of your theology. The point of all your theology is me. Quit talking about the theology and let's talk about me, the light of the world. The second thing that Jesus is saying is you don't have forever to sort through this. Time is not unlimited. Jesus is saying, I'm with you here, physically present now. You have a little bit of time to receive from the light directly, and then I will be going away. I'll be returning to my father. We'll get into all that in in, in later chapters, John 14 through 17. But he's saying time is not unlimited. Let me ask you this question. I know for some of us, probably for many of us, 
one of the reasons why we might say that people don't believe in Jesus is because they just haven't got enough good theology. If people just had better theology, if people were just taught more, if they were just explained to more clearly and more intentionally, then they would have faith in Jesus. Friends, I love theology. I love theology. And yes, sometimes God uses theology and those types of conversations as the mechanism by which he transforms a human heart. But again, theology alone doesn't save people. There are people with more degrees than all of our elder team combined who studied the Bible, can quote you the original languages. They know about the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Essenes, and they know about all these different things, and they have no saving faith and no trust in Jesus. Without his spirit doing a work, theology doesn't save us. Amen? So these people, they know all sorts of good stuff, but they don't know Jesus. So now we've got our three nopes. It's not miracles. It's not the devil. It's not lack of theology. John is going to now go into editorial mode and he's going to give us some insights why the people don't believe. Verse 36, midway through, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Then he quotes from Isaiah, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he, Isaiah, saw his glory, Jesus, and spoke of him. That's That's a... That's an additional sermon that I'm not going to go into today, but what a thought. 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah saw his glory and was speaking about him, Jesus. Therefore, they could not believe, for again, Isaiah has said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. How do we deal with that? This is worth exploring in depth. Actually, there's two quotations from Isaiah. The first one was from Isaiah 53. And it's the beginning of a very famous passage. I'm sure that any of you who've been around church for any length of time are familiar with this. It says, Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then it goes into this whole passage about he was despised and rejected by men, a a man of sorrows, familiar with grief. It says he was pierced, pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And we all like sheep have gone astray and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Famous passage. How many of you are familiar with that? 
famous passage. We read it on Good Friday. We read it to talk about the suffering of the Messiah. Again, it was predicted some 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. But the point is this. John quotes from it to show that not a lot of people are going to believe. Who would believe if we told you that this carpenter turned rabbi is going to claim to be the eternal creator God of Israel and that by dying, the most shameful death would actually bring victory over the forces of darkness and forgiveness and life to the hearts of men. Who would believe that? It's foolishness. Which is why Paul says that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. But Isaiah is when they say, look, it, y'all shouldn't be surprised that people aren't believing. Isaiah saw it. He knew that people weren't going to believe. Then John quotes from another part of Isaiah, Isaiah 6. And this is another famous passage. It's the call of Isaiah in the ministry. And actually during our, our confession of sin time, Pete read from this. Woe is me. He sees the Lord high and lifted up. What's Isaiah's response? Ah, I've seen the Lord. I'm undone. I'm unraveled. How could I possibly stand before a God of such purity and holiness? And he falls to the ground and a seraphim, which is a a, a heavenly being, an angel, a messenger, comes to Isaiah with a hot coal and burns his lips and says, you are now clean. Your sins are atoned for. And Isaiah says, what do I got to do? Verse eight, I hear the voice of the Lord asking, who should I send? Who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. And God replied, Jesus replied, if we're to believe John's interpretation, go say to these people, here's what you're going to say. Keep listening, but don't understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull, deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. There's a few times in Israel's history where this language of hardness of heart is used. Does anyone remember like the first kind of significant time when you're reading the story of Israel where it talks about just like this ongoing persistent hardness of heart? Pharaoh, exactly right. The Exodus. And if you read the Exodus story, God says, I'm going to harden the Pharaoh's heart so that he tries to resist my might so I can show my glory. You fast forward in the story to this time in in Isaiah, the people of Israel, they have persisted in so much hard-heartedness against the Lord, worshiping other gods, turning away from him, that now the same language that was used about the Pharaoh is now used about the children of Israel. Is that heartbreaking? And then we fast forward again to the time of Jesus and John is writing, he says, it's the same story. It's the same story. Ongoing, persistent hardness of heart. You should be able to see how amazing God's work is. The Pharaoh should have been able to see, oh, God's turning rivers to blood and and blacking out the sky. I ought to, you know, take a knee, so to speak. Why can't he see? The people, the time of Isaiah, oh, they should be able to see that God has always, 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 always been faithful to them. Why can't they see? During Jesus' time, 
Jesus is doing these miracles. He's preaching the gospel. Why won't they believe? Why won't people get it? Deaf ears, blind eyes, dull minds, and hard hearts. And actually what's really hard to grasp is if you're looking at this passage here in Isaiah, in some context, some way, the, the, the preaching itself for Isaiah to go out and preach is in some way a factor in that hardness of heart. So, John opens up this great debate that we're always having within Christianity, but really humanity's always been having, about this idea of free will and what we could call fate or determinism. This is not a conversation or a debate that is exclusive to Christians, by the way. This is the history of philosophy. You go back to to all the way to the time of Plato and Aristotle and the earliest Greek philosophers. You go to Rene Descartes and Immanuel Kant and all of the Age of Enlightenment, right down to this very present day. Everyone is still arguing, do we have free will? Is everything determined? Does it just seem like we have free will? Within the church, sometimes it gets called the debate between Calvinism and Arminianism. I just call it biblical because it's here. R.C. Sproul, a great preacher who just passed away recently, he said this, this is no new theme for John. As we saw when we looked at John 6, the apostle recorded some controversial words of Jesus, words that helped cause many of his disciples to stop following him. Quote, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. You guys remember that? Jesus said that no one has the ability to believe in him unless the father acts upon his or her heart. The Holy Spirit must cause the sinner to be born again, John 3, 3, and give him or her the gift of faith, Ephesians 2, 8. It was John's inspired conclusion that God refused to do that for the masses who heard Jesus and witnessed his miracles. Okay, let's, let's, let's make sure we know what we know. Let's make sure we, we outline a few things because I don't want you to hear me say what I'm not saying. I want you to hear me say what I'm saying and I want to say what I'm saying carefully so I'm going to stick close to my notes. Number one, humans have responsibility. None of this conversation, none of this debate should ever be misconstrued to be interpreted that humans do not have moral responsibility, that humans do not have choice, that humans now somehow are just robots, puppets, automatons, whatever words you want to use. We just saw it in verses 35 and 36 of today's passage where Jesus looks at them in the eyes and he says, you need to believe in me and you need to walk in the light. He gives them a command, an instruction that they ought to obey. Humans have responsibility. Also, when we see in this passage about God making their, their hearts hard, well, we could say, well, then God's just making people be sinful. No, the Bible's clear. God never forces anyone into sin. James 1 says, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am be tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by whose evil desire? His own. His or her own. So God never forces anyone into sin. You with me so far? Humans have responsibility. We are each responsible for our own sinful choices. Sometimes I say it this way. You've never committed a sin that you didn't want to. 
Sometimes you get right on the other side of that sin. And you're like, ah, why did I do that? Well, because there was some payoff at some level. Maybe there's other parts of you like, I should not have done that. Fair enough. But at some level, your heart loved the sin that you chose. Number three, God never turns away a repentant sinner. Psalm 51, 17, I like the way the New Living Translation puts it. It says, the sacrifice, God, that you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Praise God. Praise God. He'll never turn away a repentant heart. Number four, we can say this. Salvation belongs to God. Psalm 3.8, Jonah 2.9, Revelation 7.10, about 14 other references that I couldn't fit up on the screen there. The Bible says salvation belongs to our God, the one who sits upon the throne. Oh, in Revelation it says, and unto the Lamb. So Jesus is part of this too. Salvation, in the ultimate sense, belongs to God. Sometime in this you know, the, the conversation, the debate about free will and determinism and Calvinism and Arminianism. There's a, a preacher, he's, he's quite old now, an author named J.I. Packer. And he says, I like to preach what I call one-point Calvinism. And it's this, God saves sinners. Can I get an amen from anybody on that one, right? Let's, we, the other fights, the other arguments, we can, I think we can all agree. We do not save ourselves and you do not save anyone else. God saves sinners. Let's just practice that together. Ready? On count of three. One, two, three. God saves sinners. Nailed it. Awesome. Salvation belongs to our God. Number five. This one's hard. But responsibility and God's sovereignty are not at odds. You are responsible You have moral responsibility. It is not an illusion. It's real. Oh, and God's completely sovereign over everything. And we say, how does that work? And let me be the first to tell you, I have no idea. The secret things of the Lord belong to him. We don't get to peel back the proverbial curtain and see all the gears and how all of it works because God is eternal and it would melt our brains. But it does. Somehow, in the sovereignty and in the providence of God, it works. And we can also say, lastly, that God is never unjust. Deuteronomy 32 says this, the rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So here's, if you have this picture in your mind of like some really sad person sitting outside of the door, knocking really hard, saying, Jesus, please, I I want to repent. I want to be let in. And God is saying, no, I've hardened your heart and, 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 and you keep away from me. And they're like, but please give me another chance. That's false. I need you to get that image out of your heart. I need you to get that image out of your mind as quickly as possible. What John is saying, what Isaiah is saying is that for some who so persist in their hardness of heart, who so persist in rejecting the gracious, powerful love of God that eventually there comes a time when God says, I'm going to give you over to that. The book of Romans uses this language that he gave them over to their hardness of heart and their futility of mind. That God says, that's what you want. That's what you get. To quote from Charles Spurgeon again, he says this, if men 
willfully shut their eyes, do you wonder that they become blind? If men will not hear, do you wonder that they grow deaf? If men will not understand, do you wonder that they become stupid? He that perverts truth shall soon be incapable of knowing the true from the false. If you persist in wearing glasses that distort, everything will be distorted to you. Don't you wish we could just fully get inside the mind of the Lord and figure all of this out? I know I do. In my more prideful moments, I I think to myself, given enough time, I could probably understand the mind of the Lord. I would never say that. But this is where faith comes in. We have to trust that these things are true. We have to trust that these things that are given to us in the scripture are true. Why don't some people believe? Because their hearts are just that hard. It's like, it's like they're blind. They can't see. You cannot walk up to a blind person and just yell at them, read this. They need someone to heal their eyes. You can't go up to a deaf person and say, listen to this symphony. They need someone to heal their ears. And only God can do that work. Now, here's, we still have a few more verses to go in John. This is hard stuff. But I'm telling it to you because I love you and it's true. I don't have it all figured out. We don't have it all figured out. But God is gracious enough to tell us these things so that we can trust him with the results. Because can I tell you something for myself? There are also times in my life where I've been prideful enough that I thought if I could just explain this to this person or if they'd, I know you shared the gospel with them, let me share the gospel with them. I'm not a preacher for crying out loud. I'm a professional Christian at this point. Like let me, let me share the gospel with them, right? Let me talk to them. And you know what? It still didn't work. Sad. Salvation's not up to us. All the last six weeks of let's go tell people the gospel, let's go share the gospel, it's all true. And at the end of the day, we're going to have to be faithful and trust that God's going to do the work. Here's where the story ends. I love this. Verse 42. After all this, nevertheless, boy, that's a word of grace, is it not? Nevertheless, many, how many? Many even of the authorities believed in him. Stop, John. Wait, hold on. You mean the authorities, like the ones that were conspiring to kill him and the ones that were trying to rally the people against him? You're telling me that even with all of this hardness of heart, even with all this blindness, there still were a bunch, like a bunch that believed in him? Well, yeah, you just, you never heard about it because they were so afraid of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it so they wouldn't be kicked out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And you're like, ouch, John. I love that. Their hearts are hardened. Their ears, they're they're deaf. Their eyes are blind. They can't see. They're so hard-hearted. Oh yeah, by the way, even still, God's grace is amazing. He got a bunch of them. He broke through. He got them. Oh, but man, there's kind of still a finger in the chest. John goes, yeah, they, they really... They really were concerned about what people would think of them. 
instead of trusting in what God says about them. It's never too late. You have a non-Christian friend. You have someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, a family member. It's never too late until the day that they take their final breath or we hear the sky crack open and Jesus returns. It's not too late. And they're not too far gone. Praise Jesus. Do not give up. Do not quit. Do not persist. Keep praying. Keep loving. Keep serving. Keep inviting. Keep sharing the good news of the love of Jesus. And you just never know when God might save even a stinking Pharisee. We know that at least two of the ones that John's referencing here are a man named Nicodemus. We saw him back in John chapter three. We see him again at the end of the story and a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. These two men go and get Jesus' body off the cross. So at some point, they stop being quite so scared. They go public. Can we take the body of Jesus? Could we bury him? How awesome is that? Listen, God's grace can melt the hardest of hardened hearts, even one that only loves man's praise. Ephesians 3 says that God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. So you and I, in our earthly mindsets, we look at somebody who say, they're too far gone, their heart is too hard, and God says, watch me work. Man, that's good news. Oh, I love it. So two questions. Number one, have you stepped into the light? Some of you are here today and you're intrigued by this. You find yourself you know, asking these questions. Man, do I really believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Do I believe that he's a son of God? Then your decision today is to step into the light. And actually by stepping into the light, I don't just be- mean believing in your heart. I mean confessing it with your mouth. I know people who believe in Jesus, but no one would ever know because you don't talk about it. So maybe today, for the first time, is the time where you say, I believe in Jesus. I trust in Jesus, and I'm going public with it. For the rest of you, you have believed in Jesus. You have confessed him with your hearts and with your, with your, with your, with your mouth, and you've spoken it out in front of others. Well, then here's your job. Share Jesus freely and trust God with the results. Trust God with the results. It reminds me of the verse in, in 1 Corinthians. The, the, the people in Corinth are, are having a, a fight about whether Apollos is a better preacher or Paul is a better preacher. And Paul's writing this letter. He goes, look, first of all, knock it off. What is Apollos? What is Paul? We're, we're servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. He says, I planted. Apollos watered. God gave the growth. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but God gives the growth. Our job is faithfulness. God's job is results. Amen? So let's trust him with that. Father, I thank you that you invite us into this place of being able to share the gospel with those in our lives. God, I thank you that you allow us to participate in your mission. God, would you help us? For some of us who are just afraid and who are fearful Uh, God, would you give us boldness and courage to step out into the light and to speak out your truth? God, for others of us, maybe we feel overly important. It's, It's too much on us. And God, I pray that you would help us to trust you. And God, 
I pray that you'd help us to never give up, to never quit sharing the gospel, to never quit preaching about your goodness and your, and your glory and your name. Would you help us to be found faithful? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.